The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Delayed but not derailed. ECB Chief Christine Lagarde says 2021 could be the year of the recovery despite strict lockdowns and the risk posed by new COVID variants. We're really looking at a phase one where it is still about crossing that bridge to the recovery, but where the journey seems to be a little bit delayed but should not be derailed. The EU threatens to impose export controls on vaccines. This as French Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire tells CNBC the speed of the vaccine rollout is critical. President Macron made very clear that we want to accelerate on the vaccine because we are fully aware that there is a direct link between vaccine and economic recovery. By American, President Biden signs an executive order aiming to boost U.S. manufacturing, whilst Germany's economy minister looks for a more competitive European model. We have to make sure that the European model becomes looks more attractive than it has looked for quite some years. That is the big challenge ahead of us. And another day, but more instability in Italy. The Prime Minister Giuseppe Conti will tender his resignation this morning and seek a new mandate to form a government. A Swiss bank UBS posts a 137% jump in its fourth quarter net profit and says higher client activity could increase revenues further in Q1. We hear from the new CEO, Ralph Hammers, at 8 o'clock CET. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Good morning, Jeffrey Cutmore. Morning, I'm so glad you're here. I was so rubbish yesterday on air that sure I needed you, you and Karen to kind of pet uh, me up. So, I've got both of you today. So, right. um, but but look, uh, there's some great articles out there at the moment mm. about bubbles and how we value um, growth companies. And there's a new one in the FT talking about uh, price to sales ratios. How mm. we can't use the old metrics; we have to use price to sales. And looking at uh, uh, the, the extraordinary multiples that so many companies in the S&P are on. But I want to go back to the old world, back to Novartis, which is a company. I think we know how to measure now. So far this year, it's starting off okay. It's up around about 3% as well. It had the same pretty aggressive ride that most companies had in the last 12 months, as you can see uh, from that screen. But net, net, it's, it's, it's moving in a northerly direction. But what about the figures themselves? Well, let's have a look. They're talking about full year. Uh, Novartis delivered sales growth and margin expansion continued progress it's uh, in its next wave of medicines in 2020. Fully in net sales from continuing operations were up 3% and up 3% at constant currency as well. Uh, pharmaceuticals uh, BU grew 5% driven by Entresto. Uh, lots of other drugs mentioned in there as well, which I don't know how to pronounce, so I won't go on those. Uh, 2021 guidance. Um, Let's have a look. Delayed but not derailed? Oh, no, that's the new buzzword from the ECB, isn't it? Uh, 2021 guidance from continuing operations. Net sales expect to be low to mid-single digit as well, so pretty much what they delivered last time round as well. COVID-19 negatively impacted demand, especially... Here we go. Ophthalmology. I did it. Whew. Dermatology and Sandoz retail as well. Um, just looking down, free cash flow of 11.7 billion US dollars. 
um, billion dollars, uh, down 10%. Higher uh, operating income was more than offset by payments related to legal matters and lower divestment proceeds. Just trying to see if there's anything else in there we need to. No, just to say the guidance assumes that we will see a return to normal global healthcare systems, including prescription dynamics by mid-2021. Well, I tell you what, we've also had news out of the financial sector as well, and Karen is pouring over the figures for uh, Ralph Harmers' group. Not a bad start to the fourth quarter. Again, very strong activity we've seen on markets, supportive backdrop for UBS, and uh, they've bounced as a result in their numbers. Uh, the 2020 net profit, uh, $6.6 billion. Uh, that is a 17.6% return on CET1 Capital. They say the clients continue to, to put their trust in UBS in a challenging year. And uh, of course, we did see huge amount of activity on markets. And uh, one of the big challenges for the banks was to seize upon that activity and make sure it was their clients bringing the money in through their own door, not going elsewhere. Uh, they also say they, they navigated the uncertainty, the strength and resilience uh, allowed them to continue to deploy resources for the benefit of clients uh, and also to continue lending commitments to clients globally. Uh, that increased over 65 billion US dollars year over year and uh, including uh, 3 billion Swissy to uh, Swiss SMEs under the government-backed program. The uh, fourth quarter specifically, uh, profit was at uh, just over 2 billion. That is up 122% year over year, including net credit loss expenses of 66 million US dollars. Cost income ratio 74.1%, uh, that is a 12.7 percentage point improvement year over year. And uh, total operating expenses, they decreased by 1%, not coming much coming off those costs at 1%, but still moving in the right direction. The net profitable attributable to shareholders was 1.71 billion US dollars. That is up 137% and clearly a huge beat versus what the market was anticipating. So the company now hitting targets, but also looking to return cash to shareholders as well. And that's been what the company has been attempting to do in recent months. And set the scene at the back end of last year, talking about those payouts to shareholders, they say their strong capital position supports growth, future dividends and restarting buybacks. And they talk about uh, effectively they intend to propose for 2020 an ordinary dividend of 37 cents US cents per share. Also, they repurchased uh, 400 million US dollars worth of shares in 2020 and reserved 2 billion of capital for potential share repurchases. So, uh, in a week, uh, as we've been talking about stakeholder capitalism, you're still seeing. In the banks, this commitment, this uh, sort of urgency to trying to, to bolster those returns for shareholders. Um, yeah, I just, I, I'm just going to say, I was just having a quick look, and I, as is my want, I, I compare European investment banks to US investment banks, and uh, I just look. It's very crude, but that's me. Um, the uh, price to book on this company um, is one point. Well, no, big pardon, 0.847 trailing, 0.826 the next 12 months. Um, in the US, you will not find a, uh, an investment bank this turning round that's less than one. In fact, significantly higher than that if you're looking at the likes of JP Morgan as well. So interesting about the buybacks, maybe that will try and redress some of those discounts that the European uh, investment banks are trading at.
You so, spoke to Goldman Sachs' boss yesterday. I did. I spoke to him, and we're going to play some of that out, so Go we'll hear a lot about what, that. What was the most well, exciting? Um, the, the most interesting thing, I think, was when he talked about the state of euphoria in the markets, but that's not the point I was going to make. Yeah. I also spoke to Bill Winters from Standard Chartered, and we're going to play some sound from that interview. Mm. And I asked him about buybacks and about restoring dividend payouts. And of course, Standard Chartered, like all the other banks, was under regulatory pressure to suspend payouts because there were concerns about capital levels and liquidity. But all of these banks now that we're starting to get reporting are obviously over-provisioned for the impaired loan count up to this point. That is a nice problem to have. So, well, lovely. Yeah, so you seriously. can recapture, as they say, or you can write back some of those um, provisioning to improve profitability over coming quarters. But the question is, you know, on the balance of the evidence, what is the wise thing to do at this point? Do you keep it as retained earnings in case of emergencies to satisfy the regulators, satisfy the central bank, or do you pay it out as dividends? And do you pay it out as some form of share buyback at this point? And so my question to Bill Winters was, is it important for the credibility and the robustness of the financial system that banks be seen to be able to hand surplus capital back to um, shareholders at this point? And of course, his, his answer was broadly, yes, we, we do think it matters at this stage. But the problem for me at this moment is there are several stages to this crisis that have yet to unfold. And if you listen to people like Carmen Reinhardt, the zombies will emerge, but they will emerge later, and we will find out exactly how bad the impairments are maybe six, 12 months down the road, but not now. Mm. So there's an interesting issue, I think, for UBS and all of these banks at the moment as to how gung-ho they are about paying out that surplus capital at this point, given that there are some of these uh, wise heads in the macroeconomics world who are suggesting that actually the pain will be later, it won't be now, and we should still be preparing for it. Yeah, I hear you. Um, I think we've got to move on, but um, Ralph Harmers... Very exciting, actually. Um, Ralph Harmer's um, moved from ING to UBS, of course. Uh, that interview we'll play later on. When are we playing it? We're playing it in 50 minutes' time. Very excited to hear that. Now, EU Health Commissioner Stella Kiriakides has doubled down on criticism of AstraZeneca, saying the company's explanation for the COVID-19 vaccine shortage is unsatisfactory. This after the uh, Anglo-Swedish drug maker announced it could not meet its agreed supply target through March, which could see the bloc lose a reported 19 million doses. EU lawmakers are now looking to force drug makers to register their vaccine exports in advance in order to track their progress. So the impact of the slow rollout of the vaccine across the EU was a key focus of a Davos agenda panel. I moderated with finance and corporate leaders on, uh, well, it was actually yesterday evening that we did the conversation. And it just shows you, even if you can't get to Davos, Davos will come to you. Did you have snow in the Chilterns? I I definitely had (laughs) snow in the Chilterns. It felt very much like... And that's uh, not a metaphor. uh, The Swiss mountains. Um, ECB President Christine Lagarde told me that the first phase of the recovery is still plagued with a high level of uncertainty. But the German economy minister, Peter Altmaier, warned the full vaccination programme could take longer than originally planned. Can we encourage 
economic growth despite the ongoing pandemic. And this is something uh, that we should have in mind. Even if some countries like Israel uh, or the UK will manage to have vaccine for most of the population within a month, uh, for others, for poorer countries, it will take not only months, but a year or two until this pandemic is over. I think that President Macron made very clear that we want to accelerate on the vaccine because we are fully aware that there is a direct link between vaccine and economic uh, recovery. We're really looking at a phase one where it is still about crossing that bridge to the recovery, but where the journey seems to be a little bit delayed, but should not be derailed. Well, I also addressed the ECB's role in the recovery with uh, Christine Lagarde asking the central bank president whether the full 1.85 trillion euro PEP envelope will ultimately be used. Financing conditions should be a certainty and investors, whether, you know, be they consumers or corporates or sovereigns, should feel confident that the financing would be available for consumption, for investment. So it, it, there is no uh, change in what we decided in December. It is still, still the concept of an envelope that will be of the appropriate dimension in order to preserve the financing conditions and make sure that they are favorable for consumption, for investment by all sectors of the economy. And uh, that, that will continue to be the case. I think I've, I've said very strongly, and I'm happy to repeat that Number one, the ECB will be in the market for an extended period of time. And the ECB will make sure that financing conditions are preserved at a favorable level in order to make sure that we ultimately deliver on the inflation uh, target that we have. And the envelope, as I said, can be smaller if financing conditions uh, remain favorable, but it can be larger. Uh, which was fascinating because um, I think the market interpreted the language that the ECB used last week as perhaps the, the governing council is just a little bit more hawkish and actually would like to start stepping back from the very ultra easy monetary policy that's being pursued at the moment. So there was this talk about how the PEP language had moved from a target of 1.85 trillion to an envelope. And did that ultimately mean that yields were the wrong price, particularly for Italy and Portugal and Spain? And, and so we, we did see some of that moving out on the yields here. But Lagarde, I think, trying to make it very clear to the market at least, that there's no real change here, that we remain, or they remain, ready to use all of that 1.85 trillion if necessary. So let's just get this right and, and step a, a step back from what you've just told me in two conversations. In one conversation, we're talking about banks being in such fine fettle uh, with their outlook, they believe they can hand back um, spare capital which they've accumulated to account for bad loans, yeah? Uh, and on the other hand, we're saying that we're in such a huge crisis at the moment that the most extraordinary monetary support ever in the history of central bank support uh, may, needs to continue across the broader European 
um, theatre, so to speak. Mm. Uh, that seems quite an extraordinary two statements to put together. One, the banks think they can give back money because things are really good looking forward, OK, and they're cleaning up, making money. Two, uh, we're in crisis mode at the European Central Bank. Doesn't that make anyone else out there slightly nervous? Karen, what about you? Well, not really. When you consider that uh, where the banks are getting the bulk of their earnings from an, an income at this stage, the growth that we witnessed on the balance sheet, this is down to a very small component of the financial markets. All the activity we've seen in the stock market that clients are chasing, trying to get on board. I mean, when it comes to the non-performing loan part of, of the banks, that was where we'd seen all those early provisions uh, taken just in case we had something that looked similar to the financial crisis. But very quick action by governments, all the stimulus that they've poured into the system has stopped some of these customers going to their banks and actually having those non-performing loans, not being able to pay mortgages, not being able to pay other personal loans and other commitments. So I think the, the two go hand in hand in the sense that the stimulus is helping some aspects of the bank balance sheet. I mean, the other component here, if you bring it all together, look at uh, the, the full picture of the bank's numbers, net interest income clearly has been hit at most of these major banks, given how low we've got to interest rates at the moment. That's going to be an ongoing legacy of uh, this particular crisis. And Ralph Harmers was talking about that today, even as the UBS numbers were crossing. But I, I think we're, we're looking at one component where you've got that huge market activity. And every time we get news of more fiscal stimulus, don't forget the markets take another leg higher. So I think they're slightly different. But just circling back to where Christine Lagarde was at, you know, what we've had here concerns about further restrictions to tame the, the new variants of COVID. Uh, her message still is that the recovery hasn't been derailed, but it has been delayed. And that's the problem. If we talk about a, a timing issue now, how much more stimulus is required to get us through this gap period? As uh, you know, even here in the UK yesterday, we we're talking about some form of travel restrictions potentially, and maybe having to quarantine in hotels if we've returned from overseas. I mean, I, let's just pick up on that because I think what, what's clear is there's a real difference between how, if I can use the American terminology, Wall Street and Main Street are experiencing this pandemic. And I think that's the key here, that if you are in the healthcare sector, if you are in the financial sector, you're not having a bad war at this point and they are beneficiaries uh, ultimately these are businesses that can still operate regardless of the pandemic and have operated throughout and have benefited from the inflation of financial assets that we've seen as a result of central bank action which was really designed to support main street rather than Wall Street. Well, but we exactly. know the unintended consequence or maybe the intended consequence has been to drive down interest rates, drive down the cost of borrowing and provide support for the banking sector and provide support for um, financial assets. But that hasn't trickled into the real economy. What we've had is governments instead have had to step in and provide fiscal support. And I, I brought this up yesterday with uh, Bruno Le Maire, the French finance minister, who actually makes the point that he thinks, given how Europe did supporting its economies compared to how the US did, actually Europe could perhaps offer a few lessons for the USA. Let, let's just listen to what he said. We have to learn from the US. And I think that the US also have to learn from the way we faced the crisis at the European level. For the first time in our recent history, we have taken... I mean, all the 27 member states and especially the 19 members of the Eurozone, the same kind of measures to face a crisis. We have decided to support the employees and I think it was the right decision and it will allow us 
to have a quick rebound as soon as growth will be back. Uh, the same for uh, the private companies. We have decided to uh, provide state-guaranteed loans to um, the uh, private companies, and it would be very efficient because it has avoided to have uh, two important numbers of bankruptcies, and it will allow us, as soon as growth will be back, to have a quick rebound. And thanks to that kind of measures, I think that we have been able to build a kind of new European economic model, which could maybe inspire the United States. I'm sure the US would love to be inspired by uh, Europe. Oh, you should have uh, seen David Solomon's face from Goldman Sachs, you know, when yeah, that yeah. was going on, because we could all see his reaction on Did the screen. Did he have a pin in his palm? I think he was. <laughs> I think he was pinching himself rather hard at that uh, point. Several key European leaders will give special addresses at the Davos agenda today. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen will speak at 1100 CET, followed this afternoon by the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, 1300 CET, and the French President Emmanuel Macron, who perhaps will be handing out more lessons to the Americans at 15. CET. You can follow their statements live on CNBC.com. And for more coverage from the Davos agenda, uh, including why ECB President Christine Lagarde says the global recovery has been delayed but not derailed, head to our website. That is CNBC.com, Karen. We're going to continue our own uh, Davos coverage later in the show. We're going to be speaking to the OECD Secretary General Anhaguria. We'll also discuss vaccine logistics with Deutsche Post CEO Frank Apple. And then at 9 CET, we'll ask Oliver Betty, the CEO of Allianz, how corporates can pay for the net zero transition. While later in the show, Swiss Re CEO uh, Christian Mumenthal will join us to discuss climate change action. And uh, let's just circle back to some of the politics we're watching in Europe for you as Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte will resign after a cabinet meeting this morning. Conte will reportedly tender his resignation to President Mattarella in the hopes of securing a mandate to form a new government. The move comes as a final effort to cobble together a broader parliamentary backing for the government after the withdrawal of former coalition party Italia Viva ended their majority. We're going to bring you updates from Prime Minister Conte's address that will be crossing at 9 CET. And Juliana, our colleague, will also have more on the logistics behind the global vaccination rollout later on today when she hosts Deutsche Post CEO Frank Apple, the CEO of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance and the head of Africa CDC on a panel at this year's World Economic Forum. You can catch that session at 12 midday on the CNBC International TV YouTube, Facebook and Twitter. So uh, be sure to tune in for that conversation. And for more from Bruno Le Maire's belief that the US can learn from Europe, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
Mr. Classic yesterday. I was waiting for a wall. That's why we're a bit longer today. Oh. Uh, I was left with a wall that oh. basically had the Black Sea, and oh. I had nothing to say in terms of financial markets. I could have done a good oh. Silk Roads chat, actually. Yeah. I mean, if you were here, that's what you would have done, wouldn't you? Yeah, Talking absolutely. about the importance of Central Asia. Anyway, what I have got is I've got the US market, so I'm grateful uh, to the team in the gallery for giving these to me eventually. Um, the Nasdaq was up seven tenths of 1%, once again outperforming. And what is interesting, I thought, is that the Nasdaq is now up five sessions in a row. Uh, and the Dow is down three sessions in a row. Now, it's not pure what I'm about to say, but it is very interesting that this value growth dynamic that we've talked about so much at the tail end of 2020 and this vast herd, I was going to call them sheep, no, lemmings, no, um, vast herd of investment bankers who know what they're talking about have suddenly gone, yes, you need to look at value rather than growth as well. Well, Start of 2021 is not quite working out the way they planned, is it? But anyway, we'll come to that. I'm sure they'll be right eventually, all of them together. Uh, and the S&P 500 was up four tenths of 1%. I do want to talk to you briefly about data, if I may, as well, because we have got the January consumer confidence figures. They're very important. FOMC tomorrow, very important. And the fourth quarter GDP out of the US on Thursday, very important data, all of that as well. Asian indices, the, the Aussies are closed. I should find out from Karen what on earth they're closed for as well. I'm sure it's a, a very important holiday as well. But look at this across the board. Hang Seng, which has been uh, motoring up by a similar margin the last couple of days, down 2.4%. Shanghai Composite down 1.5%. And the Kospi over in South Korea, which was one of the stellar outperformers last year and at the start of this year, down 1.8%. Opening calls for European markets. Uh, we're called flattish at the start of trade, but the MIB down a little bit, of course, because of concerns uh, about the uh, government as well. But before we go to the next segment, Jeff, you know what the holiday is, don't you? 1788 Australia Day. Of so course. this is a, it's a, I thought you were doing this deliberately, actually, because it's a controversial commemoration because it marks the arrival of the British settlers ultimately in Australia. The Australians will say, actually, we founded this country way before that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah tricky one. So Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon has warned of the dangers from overusing special purpose acquisition companies, otherwise known as SPACs, but played down concerns the trend could lead to a crisis. It's appropriate to be looking at something like SPACs and thinking about what the consequence of this capital markets innovation can be. As I said last week on our earnings call, there's benefit. I think this is a good capital markets innovation, but like many innovations, it can go too far. Um, and I think at this point, there's an enormous amount of capital being accumulated and the incentives may need to be rebalanced and that needs to be rebalanced over time. I think at some point, the market will naturally flush some of this excess out, but that doesn't necessarily mean when the market flux that flushes that excess out that we have some sort of a market crisis. It can be just a rebalancing of markets over a period of time. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.